Our sermon text this morning is from Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 through 9. I entreat you, Odia, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Maybe seated, friends. Would you please pray with me? Our Father and our God, we come before you this morning as a dependent people. Lord, only you possess the word of life, so we ask that the Holy Spirit would come and do what we cannot do. Would you please breathe life into your word this morning and speak to us through it? To you be all glory, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Energy equals mass times the speed of light squared. More popularly referred to in its algebraic form, E equals mc squared, or simply by its name, the theory of relativity. I'd wager you've heard of it, and the man who discovered it. However, to to truly appreciate what Einstein did here, we have to recognize that he did not create it, he merely discovered it. This is because you cannot create a foundational truth. You just observe that the world acts and the universe acts in a certain way, and then he quantified that mathematically. See, this is a truth that is so true, a truth that is so foundational, that the implications of his discovery almost cannot be overstated. It introduced the idea of a fourth dimension of time, the concept that we can't travel faster than the speed of light, the idea that gravity acts as a force of acceleration. But it's not just these lofty, heady impacts. It's actually impacted your life. If you've ever used your phone to get directions to go anywhere, you owe that to Einstein. GPS technology simply doesn't work without a foundation of E equals MC squared. Okay, so where am I going with this? There are many correlations here to the gospel, friends. It too is a foundational truth. More than that is the foundational truth that explains all of creation. To borrow a phrase from Matt Whitman, it is the realest and truest thing. And yet, we can often fall into an understanding of the gospel that focuses only on the lofty theological things. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying, please. We should revel in lofty theological things. But to stop there, our text this morning will not allow that. This this is the truth of the gospel. The second person of the Trinity took on flesh, 
lived the perfect life you and I could never live, laid down his life for us, bearing our sins on the cross, he died the death we deserve. He bore our judgment. Defeating death, he rose again to life. He has ascended to sit at the Father's right hand, and he is coming again. Friends, there is an eternity of glorious, deep, and abiding theological truths there. But if we only interact with them on a mental level, we miss the point. As we'll see from our text today, the gospel must transform every aspect of your life. The gospel must transform every aspect of your life in three concise portions. First, verses 2 through 3, relationships. Second, verses 4 through 7, reactions. And finally, verses 8 through 9, routines. First, relationships, starting in verse 2. I entreat you, Odia, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Now, friends, nearly all of our passage today is imperative. That is, it is instructions to do things. And here we have our first instruction. And what Paul doesn't say is almost as significant as what he does say. I mean, what do we know about the situation that Paul's writing to from the text? Well, we, we know that there's a disagreement between Iodia and Syntyche. And we don't know what the disagreement was, but we know that it was a big enough deal that it made it all the way from Philippi to Rome. Paul's in a Roman jail cell. But notice what, what Paul does here. He doesn't take sides. He instructs them to agree in the Lord. Just, just for a moment, I want you to, to put yourself in their shoes. Someone has wronged you, said something, done something that has greatly offended you. Or perhaps you've done something that you thought was innocent and it has offended or upset someone else. But either way, you've dug in your heels. I'm not wrong. He is. I'm not going to apologize. She needs to apologize to me. And then you get this letter from Paul. And it has been great hearing from him again. He's been super, super encouraging. He talked about how much he cared for you. He reminded you of the gospel. And then just before this, he says that he loves you. And he calls you his dear friends. And then he says, and I entreat David, and I entreat Ian to agree in the Lord. And just like that, your bitterness and stubbornness and short-sightedness has been called out. But again, he, he doesn't take sides. That's not his aim. His aim is to have you focus on the foundational truth. And he continues here in verse 3. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Now, there is some speculation as to who this you is that Paul refers to here. Some theologians suggest that perhaps it was Luke who was there. Others who say, others say Zuzugos, which is the word for true companion here, is actually someone's proper name. Personally, I think Paul is using the singular form you to directly appeal to each individual of the corporate body. Now, this is not unprecedented in his writings. In Ephesians, he says, you, very specifically, not y'all, but you were dead in the trespasses and sins. And yet that was true for everyone who heard it. 
Paul is appealing to all of those who are his true companions because their names, like the names of Yodia and Syntyche, are written in the book of life. And that's what flips the switch, friends. Do, do, you, do you see it? The gospel transforms relationships. We have a foundation that is so true and so real and so enduring that all of our squabbles amount to nothing. Even things that you think are really, really, really important cannot get in the way of agreeing in the Lord. If there is anything that is so central to who you are as a person that you cannot fellowship with someone who disagrees with you, that is that you cannot give of your time, of your money, of your love, of your efforts, if you cannot care for a brother and sister in that way, then quite frankly, you have lost your perspective. Not political party affiliation, not how we ought to educate or raise our children, not our stances on vaccinations. Your names are written in the book of life. Do you understand what that means? That means that Christ died for them. He did not die for the cause that you champion. And so the gospel must transform our relationships. Not only our relationships. Second, our reactions. Verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. This has perhaps been the main point of this letter that Paul's written. To live life joyfully. And Paul here instructs us to rejoice always. And if you're like me, you think, always? Always. But how is, on earth is that possible in a sinful and fallen world that we live in? I mean, how do you rejoice at the prognosis that the cancer is spreading? Or the relapse of a wayward child? How do you rejoice at another employer refusing to hire you? Or another negative pregnancy test? or just our own particular struggles with sins that we face day to day. None of those things offer any occasion for rejoicing. And I am not saying that they do, and Paul isn't either. Here is what Paul is saying, the first part of verse 5. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Dear friends, beloved of God who suffer in a fallen world that is not as it should be, your God is sovereign. He rules over all things, and he is benevolent, the source of all good, and he dearly loves you. To quote a mentor of mine, if you ever doubt God's love for you, you need look no further than the cross. In light of the truest, realest thing, that is the gospel, in light of our great God being who he is, it is reasonable to rejoice through any trial. That does not mean that you don't weep. We as a church will weep with you. It doesn't mean that you don't pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. You should. It means that you have hope and joy in the realest and truest thing in spite of the darkest things in our lives. But Paul continues. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Do not be anxious. At the risk of losing everyone here, what is it that makes you anxious? What robs sleep from you? What gives you that feeling in the pit of your stomach? You know the one I'm talking about. Paul says don't be anxious. 
And now I realize that there are two groups of people here. Some of you, like myself, would say, anxiety isn't really a problem that I struggle with. And yet, if we're honest with ourselves, at times, we do face anxiety. As some of you are aware, my daughter, Vivian, who's just barely six months old now, was sick recently. So sick, in fact, that on July 5th, we had to take her to the hospital. Now, thanks be to God, she was home that same night, and I was back to work on July 7th. As I was showing a couple some engagement rings, my phone starts buzzing in my pocket. One buzz, two buzz, three buzzes, and I realize that it's not just a text message. I pull it out of my pocket quickly to check, and I see that it's a call from Tori, my wife. And immediately, my mind begins spinning. What is wrong with Vivian? My breathing accelerates. My chest tightens. I have a shot put sitting in the pit of my stomach, but (laughs) I don't wrestle with anxiety until I do. And there are others of you here who struggle greatly with anxiety. And what can seem to the outside observer like the smallest thing explodes in your mind and has a great impact on your level of anxiety, which is really what it is, levels of anxiety, because it never really and truly goes away. Both of you are at risk of tuning this out. One, because it's not a problem, though it really is, and the other, because it is omnipresent and oppressive And a biblical command to not be anxious is, quite frankly, anxiety-inducing. To both of you, let's hear Paul out. Let's hear what the Word of God has to say, first with how and then with why. Do not be anxious. How? In everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. See, friends, this is the opposite reaction of anxiety. This isn't the type of thing that changes overnight. And so you practice this by realizing that you're starting to be anxious. And when you recognize that, you do this. So instead of mulling it over, you pray. You pray and you ask God to act and you thank Him for what He has already done, which means that you rehearse the gospel. That's what He has done for you, friends. There is no better balm for anxiety than the gospel. When you rehearse the gospel, you remind yourself of the realest and truest thing. You orient yourself to an eternal perspective and often, not always, but often momentary worries crumble before the eternal truth of God's care for us. More than that, friends, you remind yourself of the lengths that your loving God is willing to go for you. You remind yourself of his faithfulness, trustworthiness, and compassion, and that you are, above all else, his. Do not be anxious. Why? Why should you not be anxious? The Lord is at hand. God is near to you. The perfect, good, all-powerful God who loves you is near to you. He is so near to you that his Holy Spirit indwells you. And as a result of that, verse 7, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The unfathomable, unimaginable peace of God will keep watch over your hearts and minds. This is emotional peace in Jesus Christ. 
Friends, though anxiety feels so immediate and so overwhelming, the gospel is truer and realer than your anxiety and sorrows. Never forget, friends, never forget that God will wipe away every tear. So rejoice in the Lord. Do not be anxious. To do so is the result of transformed reactions. The gospel must transform your reactions. Lastly, our third point, routines, verses 8 and 9. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. This may sound for a moment like I'm talking down to you. I promise that I'm not. When you do something new, a second, a third, a fourth time, it becomes easier to do it nearly every time that you do it. You're probably thinking, yes, Riker, we have a word for that in English, learning. And you're absolutely right. But what I want to draw your attention to is is how that actually happens. On a biological level, what does your brain do when you're learning? Well, you, you fire off neurons, electrical impulses in your brain. You actually build these neural networks in your brain so that when your brain goes to do that again, it does it more easily. David gave me a really good illustration to flush this out that, that is just readily apparent to us if we think about it. If, if, if you're up walking in the mountains, is it easier to walk through the trees or to walk through the path that people have already walked on? Well, walk through the path, right? And, and though we have a better biological understanding of this than ever before, I don't think that we are the ones who invented this or discovered it. I think it's partially why Paul tells us in verse 8 to have disciplined thought. To think of what is true rather than what is false or speculative, which in and of itself would avail much of our anxiety. Think about what is true rather than speculating what may happen. All of those conclusions except for one, maybe if you happen to guess right, will be wrong. They're false. Think of what is honorable, not what is insignificant. Think of what is just and pure, not what is sinful. Think of what is lovely, commendable, and excellent, not what is despicable or repugnant. Think of what is worthy of praise, not worthy of rebuke. Friends, in our current culture where the easiest thing in the world is to complain about what you disagree with and be anxious about what will happen tomorrow, I implore you, Paul instructs you, think Christianly instead. Use your mind to worship the Lord. Memorize Philippians 4 and use it to discipline your thoughts. If you change your thoughts, they will affect your actions. They will change what people see and hear from you. Now, admittedly, friends, we cannot imitate Paul in the way that Paul is instructing the Philippians to imitate him. We have not seen him, heard him, spent time with him, put our hands on him. Of course, we have his writings. We have collections of his actions in the book of Acts, but we don't really know him. And so, in our times, in our present context, here are three ideas for how to redeem your routines. 
This is where I get to say, not the Lord says, but I, Riker, suggest. If you find yourself ever mindlessly opening social media on your phone, swap the location of that shortcut with your Bible shortcut. You'll find yourself absentmindedly opening up your Bible, which will give you time to read it rather than scroll through a social media feed. Second, every time that you eat, whether it's a small snack or a full meal, every time that you eat, pause for a moment and genuinely and authentically thank the Lord for what he is providing for you. When you habitually remind yourself of the Lord's provision and you get to taste and experience that, it will help abate your worry. It will remind you that God is compassionate. And finally, for parents, make a habit of reciting Scripture with your children before naps and bedtimes. And I say recite Scripture and not read Scripture because I am suggesting that you memorize it and have your children recite it with you. You will be astonished how quickly you memorize Scripture when you are trying to teach someone else and how quickly your children memorize things when they recite it and hear it right before going to bed. Ultimately, friends, these are things that have been helpful for me. If they prove helpful for you, I am glad, but I have no grounds to tell you to imitate me. But you must imitate Christ, right? Which is really the point of imitating Paul anyways. And so think of Christ's relationships, Think of how humbly he ate with the despised cultural others. How lovingly he bore our sins when we were enemies. Think of Christ's reaction. How graciously he did not condemn, does not condemn. How he trusted his father in the most dire of circumstances. Think of Christ's routines. How regularly on earth he prayed and even now intercedes for us. How often he answered with compassion. The gospel must transform your relationships, reactions, and routines so that you resemble Christ. May we as a gospel covenant community be marked by holistically transformed lives. When we do this, Paul promises us not the peace of God, but the God of peace himself. Would the God of peace aid us in our efforts, forgive us for our failures, and be glorified by our successes. Would you please pray with me, friends? Father, we thank you again for your word. We ask that we would be a people changed by and marked by your word. Shape us so that our most central characteristic is that we are yours. Would we look more like Christ than any particular subset of our culture? We ask this in his name. Amen.